Hello everyone, this is your host Manoj Tandon and welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Security, Security Confidential. Uh, today we are honored to have Justin Daniels join us. Uh, Justin hails from Atlanta. He is a corporate M&A attorney who has a deep background in cybersecurity. But in addition to those credentials, he's a TEDx speaker. He has does a podcast with his wife, Jody. He said, she said, so check that out. We'll put that in the show links. He is, he has a very unique skill set that he uses to collaborate with executives to create and implement a multi, multi-layered set of strategies to better manage cybersecurity and data protection. Um, and, you know, he has authored a book, which we're going to get into. Uh, the book is titled Data Reimagined and Building Trust One Byte at a Time. We'll put the links in the show notes to that too, listeners. So uh, welcome to the show, Justin. Thank you so much for being here. It's an honor to have you. Well, thanks. I'm happy to be here. So what's up? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, you got to be a little specific. That's about an open-ended question. Yeah. Hey, you know, <laughs> in regards to what area is what's up? Uh, in CyberSec, a lot of things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we have, um, uh, let's put it this way, in our world, uh, we don't know what the cat's going to drag in today. It's always something new. I can tell you that for sure. That is absolutely true. Okay. So, you know, um, an attorney who's an expert in cybersecurity, that is, that to an M&A attorney who is an expert in cybersecurity. That's a very interesting combination. We got to ask you a little bit about your origin here. How did you do this? Like, what what got you from M&A to being an expert in cybersecurity? How did that happen? Uh, the bridge would be all of the work that I do in technology, because I am an M&A corporate transactional attorney by uh, training, but I almost exclusively work in the technology industry. And so uh, you can name any industry. So I do work in FinTech and SaaS, and then I have the more exotic stuff that I do, which will be autonomous vehicles, drones, and I run my firm's uh, digital asset and blockchain practice. But overlaying every single one of those technologies is, of course, uh, cybersecurity risk. And unusually, I have also handled my fair share of ransomware cases as well as uh, BEC compromise that leads to wire fraud. So I've got a kind of a broad background in how I've come across dealing with uh, cyber risk. Wow. And you said two things there, ransomware and BEC compromise. So I, I, I have to ask in your anecdotal experience or anecdotally, um, uh -huh. what are some of the things that have gone wrong that cause uh, these attacks to be successful? And I'll ask, I'll even put a little context behind it. Data Breach had a article just yesterday, I think, on... Um, the fact that over, and I think statistically, they looked at the United Kingdom that over 90% of the ransomware attacks in the UK could have likely been prevented with some basic hygiene and good practices. So I'm curious uh, what your experience has shown you. So the pivot from the office to remote work 
was a huge impetus to cause ransomware cases to go through the roof. Okay. And what I mean by that is at many companies, the IT person is your de facto security person. So you have one person doing two roles that are inherently at odds with each other. And so the reality is, is when people pivoted so quickly to the remote workforce, the CEO and the management's like, hey, you got to keep the computers running. If you don't have computers up, you know, we don't have, we can't run our business. And so that's what the focus was. And then, oh, we need to implement multi-factor authentication for all our remote users. Well, that got put on the checklist and that never made its way to the top until, of course, that was the exact method that the threat actors would use to get into the network. So number one issue is specific responsibility for cybersecurity that's not the IT person who reports directly to the business owner, the board. That's number one. Okay. And then, num and then number two is some of the things I'm sure you've talked about, you alluded to, which is um, multi-factor authentication, uh, patching and using the most up-to-date software. As you said, simple blocking and tackling things that if you did, you would increase your uh, cyber posture by more than 50%. But companies are busy, they're going to the marketplace and spending money on your digital infrastructure is not the most exciting thing. It's very analogous to some of the physical infrastructure issues we've had with bridges. Right. Nobody is getting excited to spend $4,000 on windows in their house Right. And cybersecurity is the exact same thing. And so the results, particularly with this pivot to remote work that we've had in the last couple of years, are all but inevitable. And given the fact that I and this is just conjecture on my part or it's an opinion, I, I don't think that this remote work is going away anytime soon. I think that genie is out of the bottle. So there's a degree of permanence that's going to likely continue into the distant future here. Do you think that will have a change in uh, corporate culture and their outlook towards cybersecurity and for some of these conversations where before, as you said, it's like changing your windows? Who gets excited about that? Um, I don't know that that alone will change corporate executives' attitudes. What might start to change it is, for example, uh, the SEC has put new rules out around cyber that are in the comment period. Once those are finalized and those actually go live, maybe depending on how much those things are enforced, you might start to see changes. And will they apply only to public companies? They will, but here's the, here's the trickle-down effect. They're really, as you said, apply to public companies, but they really are targeting the third-party vendors of these public companies, because as we know, cyber risk isn't just the risk that your company has. Your 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 security oh, hygiene yeah. is only as good as your crappiest vendor's security. And so, if you are a enterprise company or other privately held company, and you want to do business with these big companies, they're going to start taking the requirements the SEC is imposing on them and impose them on you. So here's the thing, and we've had so many guests on this show where third-party risk has been a hot topic, and it is absolutely a hot topic. Right? And I don't know that anyone's really figured out figured it out 100%, but when that kind of 
uh, burden is put or placed on a third party, the big question always comes up is how is that going to get paid for? Because it's like the vendor is like, fine, I'll do it, but I'm going to jack up my prices because I can't, I, I mean, I just can't afford to do this. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that's usually not acceptable to the buyer in many, many, many cases. So there's that tension that, that comes into play. Is there an amiable solution here of being able to accept some of this risk and saying, given the nature of what that supplier does, maybe we don't have to impose. It's not a one size fits all kind of scenario. Well, really what you're talking about now is uh, your third party risk management program. Meaning, as I like to say, if you're an e-commerce company and they're going to touch the website, then they may get what I like to call the cyber proctology exam. That's very invasive. (laughs) However, if like my law firm example, if our website goes down, it's a bad day. We're maybe a little embarrassed, but it doesn't impact operations. Now, if our document management system went down, now that's a wholly different story. So you're talking about one of the ideas is putting together criteria to put a vendors into different tiers that gets that results in different levels of cyber hygiene that are required. And then I'm sure you and I can have a whole discussion over how you might transfer risk via insurance, because that market has changed significantly in the last 18 months. But I think the days of a company trying to say we can't afford cyber anymore. Well, you're in a digital 21st century economy. It's part of the cost of doing business. And there needs to be an educational component like Minoj. I'll give you an example. When you leave today and get into your car, what do you now do when you turn your car on? You don't even think about it anymore. What do you what do you put on? The radio. Besides the radio, your seatbelt. Yes. Okay, but when you and I grew up, did your parents really wear seatbelts? No. What changed? I don't think we even had a shoulder belt in our car. Uh, Well, in the 60s, Ralph Nader was the one who really sounded the alarm. And of course, as you know, nowadays, we're ensconced in airbags and all kinds of other technologies. Yes. But pursuing my metaphor a little further is, well, what changed? Why are we now wearing seatbelts today and we don't think about it. It's just part of our daily routine. We have 24 hours in a day. Now we get in a car. It's part of our routine. We buckle up. Why? Well, one, well, one, we've had education. Mothers Against Drunk Driving really had a compelling, thoughtful campaign that made people aware that putting your seatbelt on saves lives and we should do that. We also have now laws in almost every state, except for maybe I think Vermont, that requires you to wear a seatbelt. And so you're your viewers are probably asking, why are we talking about seatbelts? I came to learn about cybersecurity. The answer is, how do we make cybersecurity the digital seatbelt of the 21st century and really get people to think, okay, when I'm developing my new product, Zoom would be a great example. I build security into the design of the product because that's just what you do instead of what we do nowadays, which is it's an afterthought until of course we have the inevitable breach. That's, That's a what's chunk got of the change. medical device market too, Justin. <laughs> like I said when I spoke, cybersecurity overlays every technology that you can pretty much think of nowadays. It just overlays it. So how do we get to the point where in development, the C-suite is like, show me the specs. How are we dealing with security? How are we dealing with privacy? But we don't have that right now because most startups 
they need to do two things. They need one, a minimum viable product, the MVP, yes. and two, they need customers. So I'm going to use Zoom as a great example. When Zoom came out, listeners, do you remember, did Zoom have any kind of requirement well, for a password? No, why not? Well, because the key to Zoom scaling and becoming what it's become is it was convenient and easy to use. Yes. Even the installation of a password made it a little less convenient. And the product development people and the executives were like, no, we don't want a password because if this isn't easy to use, people aren't going to use it. But then what happened? Well, it created the opportunity for the Zoom bomber. And then, of course, it came out that they gave information to Facebook. And sure. so they got sued under law, settled for $85 million. And then at that point, it's like, oh, let's call in the security professionals. But at that point, it was just a cost of doing business. Why didn't they just build that into the product at the inception? Because we're not at the point yet where security is built in by design. It's an afterthought. That's why it needs to be a shift in our thinking and our laws so that it is by design. And you know what? That that th This was actually a question later on down that I had for you that you just jumped right ahead to, you know, with... You know, these the companies, it's a lot of times these cyber breaches and the ensuing legal and financial jeopardies that followed are just viewed as a cost of business, right? I guess part of the education, uh, it may be if the consumers, if we all decided, you know what, cost is going to be, we're just not going to support that organization anymore. That might actually make a material change in people's thought process. I don't know if there's other things that you, you deal in trust uh, practice all the time that can be done to change that mindset of the company. So part of how I'm trying to change that mindset is, and I know we'll talk about it, is the, the opening uh, part, the opening chapter of the book, Data reimagined. Yep, it's a takeoff on Dickens. So instead of ghost of, of of the past, we use the ghost of data collection present. And so what we do is think about in a day how much data gets collected. So if oh. I get up in the morning and I say, "Hey Alexa, turn on uh, the sports radio station," well, maybe they share that information with the local sporting goods store who wants to sell me something. Then I drive out of my neighborhood. There might be a camera that notices when I'm leaving because it's designed by the local municipality to find digital license plates. Then I go and park my car, but I don't need a ticket anymore because the uh, camera at the parking deck scans my license plate. And my point is people don't appreciate how much data is collected oh. about them before they've even had a cup of coffee in the morning. And if they appreciated that better, they may start to think, well, what are they doing with this data? Where does it go? Because when we collect data, now you're creating the opportunity for someone to want to deny you access to it, to steal that data, because that data has now become valuable. It's the new uh, digital gold, so to speak. And so I think if people start to be aware, like there was a funny John Oliver uh, show, a comedy show about Which with Edward, it was with Edward Snowden. Uh. Okay. And so uh, without getting too graphic, they were polling people and they're like, well, what if people could go on the internet and get your uh, pictures of your private parts? And that's when people went nuts. They're like, no, I wouldn't ever want to have that. But yet people don't appreciate how much data is collected. And my point in all this is 
if you start to have more of an appreciation of what data is collected about you, what's done with it, then people might start to have a different opinion because if you think about it, we're not far from being a surveillance state with all of the data collection that goes on. We're just Heck, not. Heck, refrigerators telling you what inventory you have in the fridge. That's right. But people aren't connecting all of those dots. And that, I think, has to happen because every one of the CEOs, Manoj, that you're talking about, they're also a consumer. So how do they feel in wearing the dual hat of business person and a consumer about what happens to their data? Like when they hacked into Jeff Bezos's um, iPhone and they found pictures of him with uh, his girlfriend or whatever, you know, even a guy like that, he's got issues there. But we've all traded resilience for convenience. It's a, it's a thing that's happened. We've made that choice. It might be unconscious, but the choice has been made. Yes, we, we are a society that worships convenience, and we haven't thought about what are some of the uh, unanticipated costs, just like when we outsourced manufacturing because it was cheaper and it made things cost less. The pandemic made it clear that there were costs, all right. They were just hidden, and when we had a black swan-type event with the latest pandemic, those issues came home to roost. So uh, if you take the grid down for five or six days in a, a major city, because of a cyber attack, you'd have riots. Oh, you'd have sanitation problems. Ted Koppel wrote a book on that. Lights out. Exa yep, exactly yeah. right. And so <laughs> that's to me where the education part of this is so important because people aren't really thinking about this and they should. Well, and that's data privacy, which I guess the question is, is that an oxymoron, right? I mean, is, is that really there? I mean, do can you have privacy of data in the the way things have played out right now? Uh, not really, but now you're seeing it going too far and then the backlash. Because remember, as I like to think of it, data privacy and cybersecurity are like peanut butter and jelly. They aren't exactly the same thing, but they're very complementary, and it's yes. kind of hard to talk about one without the other because normally uh, when you get into cyber issues, we're talking about either sensitive or other kind of private type of information. So... Uh, the two of them are very much interrelated. So it's hard to, to talk about security and not touch on privacy because that's the kernel of what the concern is because I don't want unauthorized people to have access to all kinds of personal information about me or it could be the government's latest plans for the nuclear submarine or something like that. But that's the society we live in. We are wholly dependent upon computers, meaning cybersecurity is of national security importance and a strategic business enterprise risk. But as you pointed out, there's still a credibility gap. What CEOs say in the news, because they know they have to, versus the actions they actually take. There's a gap there, hence the credibility gap. Well, there's a couple thoughts on that. Now, but the first one that comes to mind, is that credibility gap created, you know, simply because, you know, our colleagues in the cybersecurity industry, and I'm going to blame them a little bit here, they are often speaking a language that the CEOs just don't understand. So the CEOs, the decision makers, it's very hard for them to have the context of what the ask is going to result in, uh, how it will result in a reduction of risk. Because most cybersecurity professionals do not speak that language. Uh, it's funny that you say that because whenever I handle a ransomware engagement, 
That's one of my main roles is I act as a filter to translate what the forensic people are saying so that the C-suite people who have to make a business decision can make a di business decision. And that continues to be a problem because you can be very smart, but if you can't explain and articulate in, an, in a manner that the business people understand, uh, you're really speaking a different language. You're right. That is one of the issues. So whenever I've gone to speak to different forensic firms that have had me come and, and speak about how breach counsel can partner better with the forensic firms, that's usually at the top of the discussion because that's something that has to be learned uh, yes. by really smart technical people about how to translate what they're saying to business people. And that continues to be a persistent problem. And you want to exacerbate it, put people under time pressure with incomplete facts with their business sure. on the line and tell them, yes, let's make good decisions. Because another funny joke I have is, think about it. And since you're from Pittsburgh, this will be an easy analogy for you. <laughs> Go for it. So let's say the Steelers finally make it back to the Super Bowl. This whole desert we're going through ends. But the few days before the Super Bowl, Mike Tomlin comes out and he says, you know what? We're just going to show up on Sunday and play defense. We're not going to have a defensive game plan. We're not going to practice. We're just going to show up. Can you imagine what would happen in Twitter? And people would, at oh. a minimum, want his head examined, and most of them would want him fired. Yes. But at the same time, most companies have no cybersecurity incident response plan. They never practice. They just figure when the ransom or data breach happens, we'll just show up and we'll play. And you can see what the inevitable results are. A, lot of, them, a lot of them are relying on their insurance company. I, I can't tell you the number of people I've talked to about that, where they're like, well, you know, ultimately, we, this is why we have insurance. And the insurance company is going to have to step in and make it right. And those days are over because in the last 18 months, what's happened in the cyber insurance industry, a convergence of three things due to the high claims. We make our insurance higher premium, much higher, much in many tougher, cases. much tougher underwriting. Oh, I've had people call me with 150 to 200% increases. So much higher premiums, much tougher underwriting. Guess what you get? For all that, you get less coverage. You get much less coverage. Correct. So the days of saying, oh, I've got cyber insurance coverage for that and relying on that, those days are long over. And, you know, if you even want to get insurance and you don't have multi-factor authentication and you're not using it throughout your organization, good luck. You're basically uninsurable by 80% or more of the industry. So what we are seeing is, one, we have some market forces because of what's going on in insurance. We are seeing some things around the law, like with the SEC regulations. And so we are starting to see certain things start to bring cyber into a sharper focus. But we still have a long way to go because every week on the blockchain, there's a big hack. Zoom is sure. a recent great example of a big company in that industry where security was an afterthought. And until those things change, unless we see some type of 9-11 style cyber breach, uh, things are going to continue the same way. I honestly think, and that's what Jody and I wrote about in our book, that if you are proactively thinking about privacy and cybersecurity, that is an opportunity to build trust with your customers and really have a competitive advantage. That's a and very I, interesting concept. So you're saying that you could, in the marketplace, gain... Yes share market share from your competition well, because i mean 
uh, Manoj, give me an example. What do you like to do for fun outside of podcasting and other stuff? Give me an example. Do you like to, I don't know, maybe you like to um, run. You like, okay. Oh, run. Great. Great example. I, yeah. Okay. So let's use running as an example to flesh this concept out and, and security is um, so obviously to run. Uh, the pair of shoes that you wear, as well as your uh, moisture wicking uh, shirt, matter a lot to you. You want to sure. run comfortably. Yes. Okay. So let's say, uh, for example, you like, uh, I'll just say Nike shoes. Okay, fine. Why not? Use Nike as an example. Well, if there's something about Nike shoes you they like, they have the way they fit or what the brand stands for, well... If they have a relationship with you where they're collecting your data and they can send you, hey, Minoj, we're coming up with these new technology running shoes. You can really, you know, measure certain things about your run, your strides, all this other stuff. That's cool to you. And maybe you develop a relationship where you want to give Nike more information because you like what you're getting from the brand. You've developed a relationship. You like wearing their shoes. But let's say there's Reebok, using them as just an example, but they collect your data and then all of a sudden you get ads for shoes for toddlers. Why are they sending you ads for toddlers or stuff? You didn't ask for that. Where are they getting that information? Well, maybe they've bought data from other places that's not uh, res you know, respecting what you're looking to get out from the brand. So the data that you collect and how you interact with your customers, you know how many emails you probably get from brands you've never heard of? Because oh, you man, yeah. Right. Like, they're trying to sell you all kinds of stuff for shoes or running. You're like, I'm not interested in it. How'd they even get this? Delete. Yeah, it's a or, mass delete. I don't even look at them anymore. It's just right. delete. So think about how much of a higher target rate you would get if you're thoughtful about the data collection and you look to establish a relationship with Minoj about how you're using his data to send you things about something that you're passionate about, which is running and fitness and whatnot. But too many companies, it's just kind of a carpet bomb. When people are really looking for authentic, meaningful relationships, because that's what we have nowadays, because, you know, the days of getting your Sears Roebuck catalog are over. So now we're online. So companies are trying to figure out how to have a relationship with you and the data collection. And part of the big part of that is how do they protect your data becomes important and could be a way to establish a meaningful relationship where you want to share, you want to give to that brand. So, you know... Here's the thing with that. And yeah. uh, you picked the running example. I, I'm going to say anything that we interact with, actually, any product that we buy, are we genuinely informed consent? In, in tech, we're not, the consumer is really not able to give it. And let me further elaborate on what I mean by that. In medicine, when you go to the physician, and if you need something, you are always given a plethora of information to get informed consent from you, right? In tech, when I buy an Alexa, I just get a EULA that's 30 pages long that I will never read and I can't wait to hit, wait to hit accept. I buy a Samsung TV that allow, whose EULA says they can turn the camera on at their discretion, I just hit accept because I want the TV to turn on. You know, this goes on and on and on. Those, when you purchase tech, you are giving legal consent, but it's really not informed consent. So in that, can, 
first of all, how is that possible? How do they get away with it? I want to know about from a legal minds aspect, how how can companies get away with it when you can't actually get away with that in medicine? You you can't. You have to. It's the, differ- it's the difference between HIPAA. Well, let me step back. So let's talk about the legal framework that we have for privacy and cybersecurity in this country. So first question, do we have an overarching privacy or cybersecurity federal law in this country? No. No, no, we don't. What do we have instead? We have a sector-based approach. So you identified HIPAA. HIPAA governs healthcare. We have Graham Leach Bliley to an extent for financial services. But when you start talking to me about TVs and Alexa. Teslas. Tesla too. Now we're outside of certain sectors that have heightened concerns over privacy. And so when we get down to privacy concerns, the way this country has handled it, in contrast to Europe for cultural difference, for culturally different reasons, it's company first, government second, consumer third. I could agree with that completely. Okay, that's, that's, that's not debatable. That's just well, but, but that's the policy consideration. So now what you're starting to see is California leading the way, trying to push back on that sum with the California Consumer Protection Act, CCPA, and right. then the uh, California Privacy Rights Act, CPRA, to try to change that balance. Because now as a consumer, you have the right to see your data, opt out to have it transferred, deleted. And so... We're starting to see the pushback, but you're starting in this country from a policy perspective of company, government, person. Europe is fundamentally different. They view that privacy right as pretty fundamental, as kind of codified by GDPR. But that's because during World War II, they dealt with the Gestapo and all kinds of stuff during the Cold War. So their historical experience is very different than the one that we have in this country. Our privacy laws, in my view, or policy considerations reflect the fact that people aren't very aware of how invasive all this data collection has become. That's exactly right. And they're agreeing to it. So it's well, not like any of the companies are doing anything illegal. You're, I'm telling you I'm going to gather this data. And you're uh, agreeing to give me consent to because gather you want the Right, because you want the TV, you want the Alexa. And so what might happen in laws that require instead of, say opting out that you have to opt in. That's kind of the European approach where they don't collect the data unless you opt in. Our approach is now under certain California, you know, California laws, you might have the opportunity to opt out. But to your point, everybody wants convenience back to what we said before. I'm going to click okay because I want my Alexa to turn on. I want to have my Samsung TV and I don't read the boilerplate and the privacy policy as to what they... what they collect, you know, Manoj, if you and your listeners want to have fun next time you go to a yeah. store, my wife and I actually did this. We were looking at a smart bed. Okay. The salesman's touting about, oh, it'll tell you how many times you turned over and your oh. sleep. And so, you know, because my wife's a privacy professional and I'm involved in security, we said, well, who collects this data? Who do you yeah. share it with? And he's like, oh, we're a big company. Someone else has this handled. Oh, Wrong and answer. So we went and we went and got their <laughs> privacy policy, and lo and behold, we read some articles where in the past this particular manufacturer had had issues and been called upon by certain uh, you know consumer groups for their what they were doing with that data. Because it's amazing to me, but 
if you have if you run Minoj and it's collecting your data about how many steps you take and your heart rate, sure. is that is that HIPAA data or not? It is because I can backtrack a lot of things from that. It's not. That kind of data is not protected under HIPAA because HIPAA was passed in the late 90s. It's never been updated for what reasonable people would think is health data because a healthcare provider didn't collect that data. That wasn't involved in providing you a healthcare service. So that's why I'm saying you have the convergence and you all of these disparate pu uh, puzzle pieces, but that's kind of where we stand right now. It seems kind of crazy, but that's the reality. <sighs> Well, that it's <laughs> so without uh, the consumer pushback and some policy changes, the consumer is going to have a very hard time connecting the dots and acting on it. But hopefully, the listeners here get that, and they and they should try the little experiment you just suggested. I think that'd be a heck of a lot of fun. It's actually I, hilarious because you listen to the marketing people, and the, uh, the the key part of privacy is the intersection between privacy and marketing. Marketing people hate privacy because they want to grab everyone's email yeah. address, market, market, market. But what they don't appreciate is if you want to, you know, Zoom bomb me with marketing <laughs> stuff, what, what's Minoj going to do? And I'm doing it too. Delete, 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 delete. I hate this brand. All they do is harass me as opposed to an approach where you're more targeted, you're thoughtful about the data collection because if people find out, you know, Minoj loves to run, but that's what you're dealing with. That's the real intersection It's between privacy and uh, marketing. And then security obviously layers over all top of that because what's a key component of privacy? Preventing unauthorized access. But there's the other part of privacy, which is what data are you collecting and what are you using it for? To your point, what's Alexa doing or uh, the Samsung TV doing with that webcam while I'm watching whatever program you're watching? Well, I People should read their agreements and they might be surprised what's actually written in there. So, sure, they're hiding it in plain sight under a barrage of uh, yeah. legalese. Uh -huh. And that to me is not informed consent, but I, I get it. I get it. Well, informed consent from a pragmatic perspective versus a technically legal one. <laughs> like, you know, uh, you know I, I see them all the time. I've written them. The I accept on the button because that is a way to give consent. But the bottom line is, what they're telling you is, well, if you don't want to consent to my terms here at Amazon, you don't have to use Amazon. So they're giving you a choice, but most consumers don't view that as a choice because they want to use Amazon. Yeah, it's not a choice. I mean, some of these things are getting s stuck into our day-to-day -day lives at this point. Sure. Well, I'm sure you've had somebody on the show to talk about, hey, I've got AWS. I'm, my security is great. Oh, you know what? That's a whole can of worms. There's probably five or six episodes on that topic. Uh, that people have various very smart people have talked about so let's let's talk about your book i want to make sure we give some time to that sure. uh, yeah absolutely you know so data reimagined building trust mm -hmm. what was the impetus behind the book what what sparked your wife and yourselves justin to to do this okay. so all right she's a privacy professional and during the pandemic, we started a podcast together, the She Said Privacy, He Said Security podcast. Um, both of us speak separately, but people asked us to speak together. So the Jody and Justin show did that. And then one day we're sitting in Boulder last summer and Jody's like, what do you think? Should we write a book? And I started thinking, about it. I was like, yeah, we should do it. And then we came up with what would be something we could contribute that's meaningful. And that's where we came up with the idea of 
the way that the thesis is, Minos using you again as an example. Please go ahead. We, you know, the way that Nike treats your data is by extension the way that they treat you because this data collection has become so pervasive that by extension now, how do you want to treat your customer? Well, it's how you treat their data. And so we came up with the idea that we would write a book around how do we get executives who are non-technical to understand that, hey, I should care proactively about privacy and security because it helps me create trust and build a relationship with my customer. Because every business is trying to build a relationship with their customer so that they buy whatever that product or service may be. And what they don't appreciate is they're implementing data privacy or lack thereof and security practices that are ensuring that they are eroding trust. If you don't believe me, think of Facebook, Google, sure. and others where this has all become an issue. So we said, okay, how can we write a book that is really accessible where we tell stories? The digital seatbelt is one. The day in the life with Dickens is another to make security and privacy accessible because as you correctly pointed out, Manoj, there's so many really great professionals out there, but they sometimes find it difficult to communicate privacy and security concepts and ideas in a way right. that non-technical business people can understand. So we tried to cut through that and make the book very entertaining, accessible, plus you get the husband and wife banter to boot. And that's the bonus. That's the icing on the cake. <laughs> oh, yeah. When people have Jody and I come speak, they get the entertaining husband and wife banter. So it's educational, but there's a degree of entertainment to it because, because of that. So you have, I, you know, I was only able to skim uh, the pages. I, I wasn't able to read, in, in all honesty, uh, the sure. book, right? But I, I looked at, you know, some of the chapters are very intriguing to me, and they could be a show in themselves. So one of the chapters is Hacks and Hackers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell us about that. What's... Oh, I bet you the favorite part of that chapter for a lot of people is where we talk about, you know, back when you and I went to high school, it was the, uh, you know, the jocks were like the rulers of the school. Sure. You know, their their literal muscle was, was yep. street cred. Well, now we live in a society where it's kind of flipped. The, the, the person who's sitting behind the computer screen who's, you know, doesn't care about working out, with the touch of a button, they can wreak havoc. Yes, they can. They can shut down the stadium if they want. That's right. And so uh, one part of the book or in the chapter uh, I write about, and I say, you know, those those folks, um, they don't respect the CEO. They think he or she is a complete idiot and a moron. And they use the hacking to, sh to basically demonstrate that, you know, they're superior. And that's their version of street cred. It's not how many how many pushups they can do or how far or how many yards they can run for. It's who can they hack? Uh, you know, that's a really good observation. There, There is absolutely a percentage of people that would fall into that category. Yeah, look at Lapsus and some of the hacks that they've had where these young kids go out and do this. But to me, they're burnishing their street cred to prove they can do it and basically laughing at these highfalutin CEOs. They basically think they're idiots. Well, you know, and, and that's, a, that's one thing that's unique about the cybersecurity cat and mouse game, if you will, versus other types of crimes that take place, you know, these bad actors are very intelligent. And, 
you they're using their intelligence for what we may consider nefarious purposes for them it may be money it's street cred or it may be uh, a matter of nation national pride depending on where you're in the food chain but um a lot of people forget that these folks are very intelligent and and they are looking for vulnerabilities they are looking for flaws in the process that are exploitable and that's different from your run of the mill criminal in in many ways very true i mean now uh, you know, we have software as a service, but we also have ransomware as a service. Oh, we heck have customer, yeah. customer service to help you with the decrypt key <laughs> after you pay. And, and uh, if you get a hit very... a second time, you get a discount. Right. So uh, you're right. Remember, technology or tools, it's only as good as the person ultimately who is wielding this. So when people talk about artificial intelligence as the solution to cyber risk and all this, I'm like, okay, well, it depends on who's using the AI because AI could be used by threat actors to uh, further galvanize and create harm as opposed to the white, hat, white hats who want to use it to protect. It's just it's an agnostic tool. It's only it's dependent upon who's using it. So. I'm so glad you said it. Now maybe people will believe it. Well, it just goes back to the education part. And that's why a podcast like yours is so great. You're putting things out there. People can uh, consume it. It's just the challenge we have is it's harder than ever to find good sources of information because one of the unintended bad consequences of social media and other things is it gives a bullhorn to anybody who wants to say anything. So the amount of uh, crapola that's out there is exponentially higher. Well, yeah, a little bit of uh, using some gray matter can do wonders to filter that out. But again, that's not convenient. And we've already traded for convenience. So there you have that's, that. And that's the root problem of cybersecurity is we as a society worship convenience. And cybersecurity as yet is not very convenient. I mean, heck, even getting somebody to use an SMS, you know, for digital, uh, for, for, uh, for number text, to do multi-factor that's too much oh my god they they complain about it i heck right. at the checkout counter at rite aid you can bypass the pin on your chipped card so why have the chipped card exactly but in europe you actually can't do that uh there they force us to put the pin in every single time so let let's talk a little bit about the last chapter in your book and we're talking about inconvenience and this is a big one defense in depth Tell us mm -hmm. about it. What is it? It's a subject that's near and dear to my heart, but as, a, as an attorney, what is it? Uh, I guess from my perspective, defense in depth is when back in the Middle Ages, the gold was in the castle. Yes. So the castle had a moat, a drawbridge, yep. a relief army, all kinds of multiple layers to protect the gold. That's right. Well, now in the 21st century, the all the gold is digital. So how are we then using defense in depth, much like the castle? It's just a new, it's just the same old idea being brought forward using new technology to, you know, have MFA, have endpoint detection, have policy training in place, have incident responders in place. And so the, the, the solutions are out there. It just comes down to the will to want to implement them and accept a level of inconvenience because think about it 
one thing to get your money stolen, but let's say people want you to start flying autonomous drones that replace a pilot so in, or an autonomous vehicle like you've seen. Their cybersecurity is not good. People are literally putting their lives on the line. So it may not be as easy for those industries to get around cyber because losing all your money is a horrible thing. But that's not the same as crashing a drone, crashing an autonomous vehicle. But what's meant is and why that chapter is there is explain to readers the non, you know, the non-technical business reader. That's what the book's designed for to help them think about that in terms that are understandable to them. That to me is one of the key things we tried to do in the book is make and, it relatable. And that's what makes it so valuable. Yes. And, and, and when you look at defense, something like defense in depth, if you, and you're absolutely correct in your description of it. The trouble you see is again, the IT professional a lot of times, and I'm generalizing, I know there's exceptions, but a, a, a lot of times they're going in saying, we want Justin to buy a new firewall. We want to go in and buy this new DLP offering. And the decision maker has no idea what's the strategy behind defense in depth for his organization and where this component wise item is actually going to fit in and what difference will it make in his landscape of risk. I think and, that's right. And we never, therefore, a lot of times we never get to defense in depth. A lot of times it's, uh, it becomes a thing of, I've seen, especially in, maybe not in the enterprises as much, but in small, medium businesses where we spend a lot of our time, they're looking for, I hate to say it, but a convenient solution. I got a vendor that's I'm going to buy one technology and it does it all and I'm done. And that's a disaster just waiting to happen. Not because the technology is bad, but the thought that needed to make it all work properly and become part of the fabric of the company is really not been done. It hasn't been put in. Uh, yes. So, I'm actually coming home to Pittsburgh next week to speak at a conference at my alma mater, Duquesne, where I went to business and law school to talk about vulnerabilities with smart contracts and digital wallets. So here's yet another industry on top of drones and autonomous vehicles, blockchain, making all the same mistakes because phishing is even more of a devastating way to attack oh. a uh, smart contract or a digital yeah. wallet. Because the moment they fished your private keys, you're... They can steal whatever they want, anytime they want, and it happens like that. And so the point is the, the threats keep evolving. We keep evolving technology, but it all comes with what I call the handmade new cyber threat that has to be managed. So to your point, you can buy a technology at a point in time, but as the threat evolves, you have to change uh, with it. You can't really keep your uh, 2005 network 10 years later because unlike a fine wine, that network doesn't get more robust with time. It's just right. a ticking time bomb. I mean, I I represented a private equity firm. I handled a ransomware event for them. And I'm like, how old is this IT infrastructure when you invested $10 million? It was like 2002. I was like, well, you should have just hung a sign on it that said, please ransomware me. <laughs> I'm sure that went over like a Led Zeppelin. <laughs> uh, right. But you would think in this day and age, how did that get how did that not get addressed in due diligence but yet it happens they were focused on buying stuff 
And that's another issue is in the context of M&A, which I do a lot of, is people want the deal to get done. They don't want to spend the time, the effort, and delay it by getting into all this stuff around cybersecurity, which, I mean, Marriott and Target, uh, Yahoo, uh, Neiman Marcus, I can go down to Spain. Oh, and there's a, deals. a graveyard. Yes, of- there's a graveyard of M&A deals. I might have to borrow that from you. Thank you for that. But yeah, that's... Anyway, I mean, I, I see that, you know, all the time. So mm-hmm. on, on that note, I wanted to give the last couple minutes here for you to plug whatever you would like our listeners to know about, things that you're involved with that are coming up, uh, book events, anything you and your wife, Jody, are you guys making appearances? What's going on that you'd like our listeners to? Uh, so... Our book made it to number four on the Wall Street Journal uh, list of best new ebooks. So that was pretty exciting. That was uh, validation in the marketplace that oh, maybe our little book had some uh, interesting thoughts. Congratulations. Uh, that I'm, We're excited about that. Uh, ne- as I said, next week I'm speaking in Pittsburgh at Duquesne University on security issues around uh, smart wallets and, and uh, I'm sorry, digital contracts. I know. Smart contracts, digital wallets. We're having a, <laughs> we're having a moment there. It's okay, uh, but but otherwise, it's just um, you know the message to your viewers that we really need to start to think about the amount of data that gets collected and make people aware of that. Because if people start to realize that, then the things from privacy and data security, I think, flow from that because. Think about the next time you go to the restaurant and they say, hey, um, we'd like you to pay this way. We'd like your email address. Then you might ask the person, what are you doing with this email? What are you sending me? And then you might politely say, you know what? I don't want to give you that email. And start to be thoughtful about when you give that information out because so much of marketing is about getting your email address and start to thoughtfully decide, do I want to sign up for this app? Because, you know, when they give you free stuff, they really just want your information. Yes. They so do. I think that's where people need to start thinking differently. Because at the end of the day, we live in a society where we have to go buy stuff and they want to sell us stuff. Be a little bit more discerning about who you want to trust with your information and who you want to buy stuff. At the end of the day, to some degree, you have a say in that. But at the same time, you also want to be making your voice heard that, hey, the policy of company, government, consumer last is not to your liking. I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Well, Justin, I know we're at the hour here. It's been a pleasure to have you. Uh, there's a thousand more questions. We were a little bit all trying to cover everything, which... Uh, we did as much as we could, but uh, we'd love to have you and hopefully you can have your lovely wife join us as well next time. Come back on the show and we can get even further deeper into some topics here. Thank you for your, for your time today. I, I had a great time. Thank you so much, Justin. Take care. <laughs>